Collective Nightmares podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror films. <laughs> I'm Marshall Smith, and each week we delve into the sociological and ideological components and aspects of a specific film. And for me, that's a real intellectual joy because horror films are seemingly or at least so far endlessly interesting to me as a, a a genre that is productive for discussing the the limits of reality i was just thinking the same thing marshall that like i never get tired of going down these rabbit holes with you and there are so many they just keep going and so it's really it's just really fun i'm laura patterson marshall and i both have our phd's in sociology from the university of colorado at boulder and yeah, I, there are so many interesting things about horror films. I just don't even know if we've cracked the surface yet because we keep finding more threads that are just fascinating. And I think, my gosh, we've been doing this for how long? How have we not realized these things already? So this is great. I love it. Absolutely. We are, this is our third, this is our third episode in an impromptu mini series that is haunting possession films we started with the conjuring and our conversation from that was totally compelling and engaging enough for us to want to keep with this subgenre and so we then went from the conjuring to uh the film the possession and then we came back to james wan for insidious the 2010 film Directed by James Wan, written by Lee Winnell, and the ah, <laughs> uh, it's always so just baffles me that this is true of so many horror films in particular on IMDb. The synopsis is totally spoiler. So my synopsis off the top of my head is a family moves into a new house and has to resolve emerging troubles with their child. I know it's not great, but whatever. It's off the top of my head and it's better than spoiling it for you. We here at the Collective Nightmares podcast are anti-spoilers. We want to be ensure we want to ensure that you have at least a chance to fully immerse yourself in these horror films before we have all this discussion. So by all means check out Insidious. And as I said, this is a, a conversation within a larger conversation. This is our third episode, so it would probably be helpful. It would be helpful for you to go back and listen to either of the first two episodes if you are willing and have the time. And if you're willing to put forth that effort, we really appreciate it. If you want to just drive ahead with us, by all means, we appreciate that. We just want to give you a heads up. While I'm saying all that, spoilers. I do spoil The Stepfather, the 1987 film, and the reboot, which was late aughts, I think, followed the the 87 pretty closely i do however or i did remember to give notice so during the episode if you hear that you can skip ahead 
one minute and you will miss the spoiler part of that discussion. Uh, we spo- we spoil Insidious. We spoil Conjuring. I don't really think we spoiled the possession. We hit on some themes, but no. So there's your there your spoiler caution for this episode. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free on our website, collectednightmares.com, or on Spotify. You can also find us on iTunes. You can reach out to us on Instagram at Collective Nightmares. Let us know what you think. We would super appreciate a review or a like or a subscribe or just tell people you know who also like horror movies about us. Have them give us a try, give us a listen. And all right, we're going to pick up and move into our new episode of our podcast with our discussion of Insidious. All right. Were you scared? A little, not much occasionally for like one or two scenes, but no, not much. I don't love this kind of movie. I love it in the context of our conversation, but just as a film to watch, I don't love it. I get bored when it's supernatural because the rules just seem like they're pulled out of nowhere. And then like the, the whole last probably half hour of the film felt like one big protracted chase scene where the chase wasn't about an argument. And that always drives me crazy. It's like a chase scene is okay, sort of only marginally okay. If what the chase is representing is some sort of ideological battle, but I didn't feel in this one like it did, unless maybe you saw that and I missed it, which I would love to hear. But to me, it just felt like a lot of special effects and running around and I just check out on that kind of film. I thought about you during the chase or the venture into the further, which I guess is essentially the chase, right? That whole, that whole deal. I feel like I love it when I get to just make things up about Hollywood when I have no actual (laughs) experience (laughs) or well, maybe a little tiny bit of possible education for a guessing as to how these things worked out uh but let's see insidious came out in 2010 it is pg-13 it was a budget of 1.5 million made 54 in the u.s and almost 100 globally wow yeah which is a solid return on investment And my bet is Juan came back and said, I want to make a similar film or similar concept, but I want to make an R rated film. That is what produced The Conjuring, which is. So, what year was The Conjuring? Was that 12? 13. 13. And The Conjuring, he got 20 million. So, he got, what is that? Like seven times the budget. And it made 137 in the US and almost, or just over 300 globally. So between those two, he made some people a lot of money. And that is a very long roundabout way of saying, I totally saw this film as like a dress rehearsal of The Conjuring or like a trial run or like a rough draft, whatever you want to call it. Right, same element or same theme, same elements or similar themes, similar elements, similar concept. Same Patrick Wilson. That's right. Same actor, same, a lot of same similarity. And it was and the same, still a lot of similar camera work, similar plot structure, similar 
just all all over the place, similar, and took this and and it basically he was like, well, let me make let me make a twenty million dollar version of what I just made for a million and a half, and I want you to let me do that because I made you a hundred million dollars on my million and a half, and they were like, okay. And they were probably like really okay with it because he was like, look, there's all these similarities. This is a formula that works. We're just going to make it R and we're going to, you know, we're going to amp up the, you can trust me with the 20 still only, I mean, it's only right. But in the Hollywood 20 million in, even in 2013, I mean, that's not a big, that's not a big film. So that's my guess. Again, I have no real reason to, explain that i don't know that i mean to his credit and he had already so this is one james Wan we're talking about he's he's credited for the story for saw and directed saw which was the 2004 film that was a total game changer as an exceptional film someday we ought to talk about saw and 2004 saw was a 1.2 million dollar budget totally similar look at that earned 56 million gross just over 100 million so he was able to make the same film and earn the same money six years apart i'm kind of surprised they weren't willing to give him more just on the on the uh success of saw and there were let's see saw two three four five six came out before this so he, you know, he made a, a franchise that lasted a, I mean, well, then it went on, right? It lasted the whole rest of the decade, made money every time. And they were still only like, yeah, we'll give you a million dollars. <laughs> Bunch of assholes or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, that's what I saw. Uh, that's what I saw. I felt like it was all kinds of similar. But to, again, to Juan's credit, he did improve and refine and polish and distill the successful elements for the conjuring. I thought the conjuring, the conjuring is a better film. It was a scarier film. It was, you saw the difference on screen between budget and, and uh, it's hard to do. It's hard to, I mean, for anyone, right. It's hard to, I mean, we sit and talk about this in the podcast. We started talked about that with the conjuring last week of, for me as well. I think you agreed with this. These are, Ideas I don't believe in. I'm atheist. Uh, no interest in organized religion at all. I don't believe in spirits or haunting or astrology or any of this, whatever. I still found The Conjuring scary. I still, I was still compelled by it. I was still intrigued. I was emotionally invested. And whatever it is about Juan, who is, he's able to look at his film and, and really, to a very high degree, decide this is what works. This was what needed to be adjusted and then make that happen for the next film. That's a skill. It's a skill. It's no wonder he's been, he's now he's been given what's his big budget that he was given Aquaman. No wonder he's, he's been given, given Aquaman, which is again, I know this is kind of, a geeking thing that we don't really should to, which was a $160 million budget. So yeah. Uh, which was what uh, two years ago, 18. Yeah. So, 
eight years later, they were willing to give him $160 million and a, and a name that should be a franchise, right? In the era of the Avengers and yada, yada. I mean, they're, that's the first in, and he's slated for Aquaman two and three, I think. So, I mean, they're giving him probably half a billion dollar, billion dollar potential legacy franchise. That's a lot of responsibility. Anyway, go ahead. That's not something we usually do, really. We don't really focus on budgets and this and that, but here we are. <laughs> I don't really know why. <laughs> so I'm sorry, Laura, take us back to something more interesting. <laughs> no, I, I think that was super interesting, honestly. But I'm trying to reconcile what you were just saying there about this being kind of a dress rehearsal for The Conjuring and the fact that this was not nearly as ideologically offensive to me as The Conjuring was. It had some of the same threads. But so as long as we're just speculating on things we know nothing about, sure. I wonder if that means that in, in refining the formula of Insidious to make The Conjuring, he also worked on refining the messaging to be more problematic? Or is that a coincidence? Some of the threads were still there, right? We still had children, the hierarchy of who got haunted or whatever you want to call it, started with children and then became the mother. And then he was skeptical, but he eventually kind of gets pulled in. And that fit very much the formula that we've seen, you know, now we've seen what three films. Well, okay, no, because in the possession, the dad, it was happening at the dad's house, but did the dad see it? It was still children first in the possession. And there wasn't a mom in the house in that point. So maybe, maybe that still kind of fits. There just wasn't a mom there to sort of get hit next. But, you know, it seems like the, the, the trope seems to be that the weaker, if we go by the direct terminology of the conjuring, okay, I don't know if they exactly said weaker, but it was something to the effect of weaker, basically more vulnerable, whatever it was. More weak. <laughs> it, was, it was something like that, but I might be paraphrasing. Anyway. I say weaker, but more weak. <laughs> so it was, what we saw was that it was children first. And particularly we had in the conjuring, you know, all female children. And then the mom and particularly the mom when the dad was out of town. And then finally the dad starts to get impacted later on. And, and also we saw the same thread, but I mean, it's funny in this one because what's his name? Patrick Wilson was Ed in the conjuring. So we saw the same thread here where you have a female medium who can connect with the other world. And you have the men with the tools and the equipment scurrying around in the background saying, what's happening? What's happening? What's happening? Just like Ed was saying to Lorraine in The Conjuring. So, you know, some of those things were the same, but I did feel like this one was less problematic. It didn't hit those tropes as hard. Uh, yes. I mean, that, that for sure is the dominant, what I also expect to be the dominant focus of our discussion is and then the next question is if it's less so is that better or is it worse so should we just dive into that yeah and i would like to even just kind of carry on our content analysis of these films and start thinking about like what are the threads what are the commonalities that we're seeing now that we've seen a few of them because i want to throw on the table moving as something we should talk about just because it it comes up frequently in these films in this film it actually you know it ends up the haunting ends up not being attached to the house which i guess was the case in the conjuring as well but still the the frequent moving just seems to be a like an there's an emotional thread there in these films it's something about the fear that these films are drawing on must be tied to transientness or being unsettled or 
newness or, you know, fear of your surroundings or can you keep your cave safe? I don't know what it's <laughs> tapping into, but it's, it's got to be something like that because we see it in all three of the ones that we've seen now in some capacity, right? There's, and, and maybe oh, that ties back just to the haunted house idea, right? So like you move and then the house might be haunted, but it's odd that in all three, right, of these films that we've seen, the house actually is not haunted. So it's not a haunted house yet. We still have this moving thread throughout all three of them. So that's something, you know, I guess there are some similarities and differences like that that I'd like to just sort through, or we can dive right into the problematic ideology from The Conjuring and see how much that was played out here. Yeah, I'm flexible. I agree that that's interesting. And that's something to keep. I would put that on a back burner. But absolutely, the previous generation first, first modern, I don't know. I don't know how far back haunted houses go, but I'm thinking of the era of poltergeist, Amityville horror, house, whatever. Same first wave of of modern horror films, late 70s, early 80s. Absolutely, it was the house. It was the location. And yes, with at least with the possession, not to be confused with possessor, which we also did as an episode recently. So the possession and... No, well, no. Okay, so The Conjuring, yes, has a wrinkle, but it, it's The Conjuring has a wrinkle because it's both, but it, it's not. It's not specifically that house. It is not the house. Like it's the area, and it's a history, and they can't leave. But it, they specifically point out that it is the person. It's your kid that's haunted, not not the house. And I think I said this during our Conjuring episode. Maybe, I don't know about the only, but the primary issue complaint I had with Paranormal Activity, which I thought was a wonderful film, was, well, two things that are related. Husband or boyfriend or whoever it is, man, doesn't listen to woman who says, look, well, you ought to just pack up and leave. And two, they don't pack up and leave. (laughs) And to the credit of this film, they totally pack up and leave. If nothing else, I don't know if that was could have been response to the to the trope or but yes, I, I just at least at a very practical plot level that does address that very classic. Okay, when whatever your children start falling into comas, maybe moving as an option that should be on the table, <laughs> or when demons show up on like your videotape security camera, you know. It's worth reaching out to a real estate broker. <laughs> okay, so so as long as as long as we're on the moving theme, then I, I want to throw out a, a sort of emotional emotional note that I noticed in the conjuring and also in this film that's related to the moving. And that was the beginning of this film struck me because you had the mom, was it Renee? I, I don't even know if I ever got her name. Totally, Renee. R-E-N-A-I. Cool. Okay. So you have Renee going up into the attic and she's unsure of this new place, right? She's moving into the house. She's unpacking things and it's scary and it's dark and it's kind of unsettling, but it's also her home. And so there's a a weird theme going on there. And she, but something happened. I don't remember what it was. Something cracks or whatever. This basically the same thing that ends up happening with the kid on the ladder, something breaks and it scares her and it ends up being nothing. And then you have the kid 
falling off the ladder in the same kind of way, exploring this area of the house and, you know, it's, it's new and it's dark and then, oh, and something goes wrong. And that reminded me of the beginning of The Conjuring where you have the kids playing their hide and seek game and they're in the closet. And one of the kids, like, does the wall break down or there's a hole in the wall or something? And they look and there are like these dark recesses of the house. To the basement. And, it was, oh, it's it the a basement? basement in The Conjuring. Yeah, it's the basement that had been like walled off or boarded off or whatever. Yeah. Okay. And so the emotional tone I was getting from that was like, okay, this theme of moving, right. Being unsettled in terms of what your home is. And then also this fear of evil in your home or what scary thing is lurking in this space that is supposed to be safe for you and your family. And that fits sort of with the moving, or the moving theme makes it new. It's like unfamiliar. And then there just really does seem to be this thread of fear, like danger within Danger everywhere, right? I just wonder if we think about this as a reflection of society, right? And we think like what kinds of fears are these films mirroring back to society and showing us that we're afraid of, then there's got to be something there about not being able to keep your family safe. But beyond that, it's like your actual home, the place that is supposed to be yours and under your control is not safe. Well, right. And this is still the same era of basically when would this have been? Um, mid Obama. Did you ever watch? I think it's in Bowling for Columbine. There's a little animated segment where it's sort of like the history of the NRA. Now it's time for a brief history of the United States of America. Hi, boys and girls, ready to get started? Once upon a time, there were these people in Europe called pilgrims, and they were afraid of being persecuted. So they all got in a boat and sailed to the new world where they wouldn't have to be scared ever again. Oh, I'm so relaxed. I feel so much safer. But as soon as they arrived, they were greeted by savages and they got scared all over again. So they killed them all. Now, you'd think wiping out a race of people would calm them down, but no. Instead, they started getting frightened of each other. Witch! Witch! So they burned witches. In 1775, they started killing the British so they could be free. And it worked. But they still didn't feel safe. So they passed a Second Amendment which said every white man could keep his gun. I loves my gun. Loves my gun. Which brings us to the genius idea of slavery. You see, boys and girls, the white people back then were also afraid of doing any work. So they went to Africa, kidnapped thousands of black people, brought them back to America, and forced them to work very hard for no money. And I don't mean no money like I work at Walmart and make no money. I mean zero dollars. Nothing. Not a zip. Doing it that way made the USA the richest country in the world. So did having all that money and free help calm the white people down? No way. They got even more afraid. That's because after 200 years of slavery, the black people now outnumbered the white people in many parts of the South. Well, you can pretty much guess what came next. The slaves started rebelling. There were uprisings. An old master's head got chopped off. And when white people heard of this, they were freaking out and going, I want to live. Don't kill me, big black man. Well, just in the nick of time came Samuel Coe, who, in 1836, invented the first weapon ever that could be fired over and over without having to reload. And all the Southern whites were like, yeah! But it was too late. The North soon won the Civil War and the slaves were freed. Yep, they were free now to go chop all the old masters' heads off. And everybody was like, oh no, we're gonna die. But the freed slaves took no revenge. They just wanted to live in peace. But you couldn't convince the white people of this. So they formed the Ku Klux Klan. In 1871, the same year the Klan became an illegal terrorist organization, another group was founded, the National Rifle Association. Soon, politicians...
politicians passed one of the first gun laws, making it illegal for any black person to own one. It was a great year for America, the KKK and the NRA. Of course, they had nothing to do with each other, and this was just a coincidence. One group legally promoted responsible gun ownership, and the other group shot and lynched black people. And that's the way it was all the way to 1955, when a black woman broke the law by refusing to move to the back of the bus. White people just couldn't believe, huh? Why won't she move? What's going on? Man, all hell broke loose. Black people everywhere started demanding their rights, and white people had a major freaky fear meltdown. And they were all like, run away, run away. And they did. They all ran fleeing to the suburbs where it was all white and safe and clean. And they went out and bought a quarter of a billion guns and put locks on the doors, alarms in the houses, and gates around the neighborhoods. And finally, they were all safe and secure and snug as a bug. And everyone lived happily ever after. And... It's a kind of sarcastic little brief history of the NRA where basically talks about white people always being afraid that somebody's going to, some, well, particularly dark person is going to come after them. So they run here and then they run there and then they run here and then they get guns and then they get more guns and then they get more guns and they just never let go that black people aren't going to come for them (laughs) or brown people aren't going to come for them. So I feel like some of it is just this general conservative white paranoia that has fed the Trump legacy, right? Of somebody's coming for us. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you are. For sure it's in the cities, but it could spread to Kenosha, Wisconsin at any moment, right? Oh, and let's let's tie this into like the relativity of fear and the idea that there's some kind of baseline for how afraid or happy or whatever you're going to be kind of independent of your actual circumstances. So you have this family moving into what looks to be an incredibly safe, incredibly secure, incredibly upper-class house. Oh my gosh, really, really fancy house. And it's still, there's still fear because you can't change the external structure enough to bring that fear down because it's coming from, it's coming from inside you, right? (laughs) It's not coming from the actual external circumstances that you're sitting in. Right. No, no, that's great. Great point. Yes, that's an excellent point. Yeah, I laughed about the house too. It's like, so I laughed once it once we saw him in the classroom. I was like, oh, he's a high school teacher, and this is fucking house. It's like three stories and an unfinished, that totally could be finished attic. And then I also wanted to make I didn't put it together, but some some kind of joke about the real horror here is the hospital bills for Dalton. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. The the $600 fee for the psychic is like a drop in the bucket. (laughs) And Patrick Wilson's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We can't spend $600. So good. (laughs) I mean, he's been on, you know, in-home care and life support for like six months, but, you know, we got to draw the line somewhere here. Anyway, all that aside. Uh, <laughs> That's like my favorite observation of this episode so far. <laughs> uh, uh, where are we going with that? Yes, so we've got this baseline here. Oh, what I was going to say is that totally mirrors. Well, it, uh, I don't know if mirrors is the right word, but it, it connects to the argument about the first wave of slasher films that 
it was the breakdown of institutions and general, you know, good white middle class civilization that would allow for killers to, excuse me, permeate safe white spaces like the suburbs and Halloween and summer camp, like in Friday the 13th and the suburbs and Nightmare on Elm Street and, and all of those. And the rise of the rise of Trump and the rise of Bush Jr. For those of us who are old enough to have lived through that era, if you'll remember the, the similarities between Reagan and, and Bush Jr. are really kind of astounding in terms of what they ran on. I mean, this has been the Republican ideology since the Southern strategy and their strategy really has been promote fear, promote fear of other people and use that to leverage and devise a political strategy that you can adapt to say that you shouldn't worry about money. You should worry about race and that way we can make sure that the 1% keep getting richer and richer and richer and more powerful. And you will feel better, like you said, with your relative fear because black and brown people are being oppressed and persecuted anyway. So that's, and so I I don't, and so it's interesting to me and I'll connect this back to the moving piece of with that first wave of films it was these killers and this violence and these things that we associate or that we, that America or middle modern middle America, hegemonic America values associated with permeating these previously safe spaces, safe white spaces. And, and that was directly. Okay. So that was early eighties. That was also in response to, as well as happening at the same time of white flight, white flight is when civil rights legislation passed and Black folks actually started moving into areas in cities. White people fled to the suburbs and then fled to the exurbs. So it was, I mean, you know, obviously Michael Myers isn't black, but it's still this idea that, well, we have fled the problems of the city that we associate with being urban. And and then, so with the moving thing, it's like, I think we could see it as an adaptation where, um, where those earlier films, it was, okay, we just need to re rebolster we need to bolster this neoliberal individualism where if you fight back or you beef up your security or whatever it is, you can still ensure your safety. Even if the cops or the teachers or the, what other, whatever other institutions have failed you now with the moving, it's like, but then the other thing is you can move. And now it's like, well, you can't even move because no matter where you go, that's not going to save you. I'm trying to think if, so they don't move in Nightmare on Elm Street or do they? Well, Nightmare on Elm Street, they, what happens? Nightmare on Elm Street, they, so there's a house on Elm Street, the Red Door, classic. Second one is kind of the anomalous one. Third comes back with Wes Craven is really the true sequel to the original. And it's Nancy in the mental institution, which we should maybe talk about at some point. I don't think they ever go back to the house on Elm Street. Do they? I'm trying to think if there's what I'm trying to think about is if there were movies back then where the solution was moving. If what happens at the end of those movies is, well, we'll just move. This would be a wonderful that would fit wonderfully with this, where it's addressing this or it's expanding this concern of this earlier movement in the genre. 
And before when those movies, it was like the solution was like, well, fuck it. Let's just move now. Well, that's not going to save you. I feel like they move in Poltergeist. I totally feel like they move at the end. In the I don't remember, movie, but that one's on my list of ones I would like to do. So maybe we can go back and we can try to actually figure that out. Oh, totally. So that's something to put on the long-term table. Definitely. And, and I'm wondering too, if there's like a, I feel like I'm stretching for maybe a, a long analogy here, but this might work. Like you're making an argument and you want your argument to work. And then you find out there are holes in it. And so you have to sort of keep refining it. it it's like two little kids playing some silly game where they keep coming up with a bizarre strategy to defeat the new bizarre strategy that the other one gave them. The escalation of that sort of, the underlying issue is you're afraid. You know, I can think of this also with people I've known, particularly with some sort of mental illness situation going on where it's like, you're going to feel like that. And what you're going to hang that on might change, but you'll find a way to get back to that fear. That like, because these films are meant to express fear, if you have a genre where it's effective and there is a solution that seems like it could be enacted, then you need to elevate. Like The consistent piece is that that fear isn't going to go away because, again, the fear is coming from inside of us. And so we've got to change the We've got to change the story, change the way it plays out to hit the new, you know, to address the new problem. I, I almost want to tie it to like running up the stairs in the old slasher films. There were problems with the argument that they were making that people started to realize like, oh, hey, well, why didn't you just blah, blah, blah. And so then you have to make the new film where they do blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and cool. every time it's, it's like a constant cycle because every time you solve it, you're not solving the fear. The fear is still there. So you're still going to find a way to express it. You've just got to keep dealing with these logistical hurdles. I don't know if I'm taking that too far. Yeah, no, I think that's what I was, I think that's what I was abstractly trying to get at. And if you wanted to make a fancy or apply a fancy schema to your argument, you go with Marx's thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. <laughs> Or you could go with the kids made up tag game, Kelvin Ball, whatever. <laughs> Either one. That's cool. So I dig into that a little bit because I also want to pull in Marx's false consciousness because that's exactly <laughs> what you were arguing with race earlier. And I feel like we can't have a podcast where we talk about sociology and that explicitly talk about false consciousness without throwing it out there. Do you want to do a little uh, deviation on Marx? Sure. I mean, that's, I haven't dealt with, or I don't know why, but that's, that's a piece of Marx that I don't teach. What is the idea? Synthesis is the dominant, at least for Marx, the dominant political economic organization, the society, and the antithesis is the response to that. So you would have feudalism as the thesis and capitalism as the antithesis, and the synthesis would be a, a new iteration of the thesis that is a resolution of the two forms, which for Marx would have been communism or socialism i don't remember which comes first and then that in turn that synthesis in turn becomes the new thesis to which there will be another antithesis so in this case the to just spell that out the thesis would be the uh would be the notion that there are haunted houses particularly in white spaces in the u.s in the 80s that are reflective of some sort of perceived threat or danger for white middle-class culture. And the antithesis to that would be move. <laughs> Escape, just like what I was saying with paranormal activity. Great, so your house is all screwed up. Pick up and move. Um, and so the, the synthesis would be, within the genre anyway, 
And that's, I guess, what we're trying to figure out is if that's true. Both, it, well, we're trying to figure out if that if that is true in the genre and or if that is true sociologically would be well. We have to address that solution to the issue, which if the solution's moving in order to move forward with a synthesis, we have to have a new, a new fear that would be the, the haunting is associated with a person, not a place. So moving will not solve it. And I will just say that even if at the end of Amityville, Poltergeist, whatever, there's not a, there's not like a scene where a moving truck takes them into the sunset like you said, there can still be a cultural discourse of, well, why don't you just move? That may exist outside the content of those films, but still exists within the discourse of the genre of horror that still needs to be responded to. And I just want to say, like, on, on this topic of, like, well, why don't you just move? Having this conversation makes me love the premise of Pet Cemetery even more because I love that the answer to Pet Cemetery's problem was just move. But it it created an addictive, it was an addictive piece. And so it lured you in anyway, like in spite of the fact that you should just move, it played on your emotions in such a way that those who were weaker, if we want to put it that way, wouldn't move even though they should. And that's cool. That's a cool, that's a better way to resolve it than put the haunting in something else. I just have to say, I I like that a lot. Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, Pet Cemetery is at least the Lambert one is great have different feelings about the remake, but you know, you can listen to that episode. If you're curious, the concept, the underlying concept of what you're emphasizing there, Laura is totally, totally a better synthesis, totally a better resolution. And so we should also say false consciousness, which is this idea that people without power, I guess, in society are encouraged to believe that what is in their, they're encouraged to believe that something is in their best interest when it serves to keep the power structure the way that it already exists in that society. And so one good way to do that is to convince people that what they really need to be afraid of and what they really need to be concerned about is some outside fear that is not their economic position in society. Because if they were focused on their economic position, then they would see the solution as changing the capitalist structure and that would be harmful to the people in power. And so instead they try to displace that fear onto something else. And so like the argument that you were making of race would I think fit that very well. Which maps perfectly. I mean, perhaps the most one of the most famous things Marx ever said is religion is the opiate of the masses. So let's put that opiate into a horror movie and tell people that what you need to be worried about is demons and hauntings and whatever, instead of actually focusing on the fact that save your kid or not, you're now going to be bankrupt and crushed under medical debt for the rest of your life. <laughs> So good. I love that. I love that, Marshall. I love it. Oh, I, it was already my favorite comment about the film, but now it actually fits into like this actual theoretical argument about the film. That is perfect. They totally. have this huge house that they can't justify owning by anybody's career. The uh, mom seems to do, I don't know what she does. She plays music occasionally. She, right. And the dad is a high school teacher, like you said, and they somehow can afford this like massive, massive house. And then they've got a kid who's has serious medical bills going on. Their financial situation does not make any sense, but don't pay attention to that. That's not, that's not even happening. Just don't worry about it. <laughs> What's really going on here is that there are, there are ghosts. Ooh, there's a place called the further watch out. You might be haunted. Oh, that's so good. Marshall. That's good. That's so good. That's so, that is the culmination of this podcast. We might as well just call it right here. <laughs> so good. It is so good. 
maybe we could uh film a like satire outtake where Patrick Wilson, what's his name? What's his name? Yeah, that's right. Josh. Oh. No, no, no. Where Josh is like negotiating for a higher lifetime limit on health insurance for his child. <laughs> <laughs> Every once in a while, we get these little gems in the podcast that hang around forever in my mind. And I feel like this is going to be one, which is funny because heading into this, I was like, I don't know how much I have to say about Insidious, but that all just made it worthwhile. Thank you for pulling that together. Oh, yeah. Well, totally. Well, you, I mean, you've started all this with the conjuring and, and sussing, it, sussing it out. So so it's as as it always is, it's a, it is a uh, dialectic of... <laughs> of uh, conversation and ideas, Laura. Did you just picture Martha sipping her tea? Because <laughs> I did. Uh, no, I didn't. I don't think about Martha all that much. I don't know why. I don't either, but when I heard the word dialectic, I pictured oh. the little cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> My word for her is presuppose, is not dialectic, but uh, we are referencing Martha Jimenez, who is a uh, world-renowned Marxist scholar with whom we had classic theory with, and so we learned. And you had another class from with from postmodern theory. Postmodern. Yeah. Damn it! It's one great great regret of my life is not to have taken that class. Anyhow, look her up. She's written stuff about Marx. <laughs> All right. So uh, gender. And age? Yeah, let's do it. Gotta- it wasn't as much trouble as The Conjuring. It was still kind of trouble. Like it had some of the similar tropes, but it wasn't as bad, I thought. I-, I don't know for sure if I think it's as bad or not. Men are still science, reason, action, agency. Women are impractical emotional, spiritual, ineffective, passive. All they can do is cheer on or serve as a conduit or, yeah. So that that all still lines up. It does, uh, but, and I'm not saying it was good. I'm just saying not as bad because <laughs> we didn't have the explicit, like, professor standing at a chalkboard explaining to us how the weakest people with whatever it was, the least emotionally stable or whatever it was that they're the ones who are going to get targeted. So like that was an improvement. I'm not saying it wasn't still there, just it was an improvement. We didn't have five daughters and a mom who were terrorized when the man left the house. We had sons instead. Dad was still there. I'm not saying it was, you know, it was still what happening in the hierarchy of child, then mom, then dad still, but just a little better. (laughs) He wasn't, he was staying late at work and, he wasn't emotionally present. What did you say? You're not here in this situation with me. But it felt less explicit to me than like dad gets in a truck and drives away and then all the ghosts come out and then dad pulls back in the driveway and like, <laughs> oh, suddenly it's like the lights came on or, you know, the sun rose and all of a sudden everything goes away. It just didn't feel as bad. I'm not saying it wasn't good. <laughs> I'm not saying it was good. And dad in this one had some connection to the other world thing, whatever. So dad was, now he still played the role of savior, again, very traditional, but he at least had some kind of like spiritual connection as well, sort of, even though he had to be guided by the woman. Okay, maybe not. Yeah, no, he had nothing. He had no memory of being a traveler or being a, going to the further or 
even after being shown pictures and seeing the same woman who apparently dealt with this when he was little and yada, yada, yada. And the demon, I would argue, is clearly gendered male, the sort of a guardian of the red door who also licks Rose Byrne, Renee, in that conversation is absolute masculine. It's a masculine fight. Josh and and the guardian literally box it out. (laughs) Yes, but doesn't the... (laughs) Which I gotta say, can I just say that was a little bit absurd? We're gonna have a, like a choreographed martial, not martial arts, but like street fight with the demon guardian or the, the, not demon, but the spiritual warrior guardian of the red door and Josh. (laughs) I was like, okay. Let's anyway, go ahead. I I totally concur. I totally concur. But I think even having the demon be male is again, a slight improvement over last time. Yes. It's, it's stereotypical in another way, but last time it was this real, I mean, they were all women and they had a history of not being Mm. following the traditional female stereotype. And that was what sort of was tied into their evil. So here, again, I'm not saying it's good because it's it's trouble in a different way. Now we have like the male aggressor again, but at least it didn't have this backstory of women are evil or at least women who behave like this are evil. It did though, because the, the, the real threat that bookended it is the woman who followed Josh as a kid and was the threat to him and kept closing in and who at the end of the film has, has successfully taken over his body while they were distracted with the the demon was all this was all distraction. Like it's been vanquished. It's been overcome. But in that struggle, the, the threat is the, is the woman, whoever this is, the older woman who has, who jumped into Josh and shows up in the picture. Right. So it is actually, did, did we ever get a backstory on how she was like mean to her children and wanted to wear pants or something like, no. Right. <laughs> No, but that's why we're going to watch Insidious 2 for next year. <laughs> for the backstory. <laughs> totally. Because I remember it's either in 2 or 3. Is 3 out yet? At, the, at least in my head. I don't know if this is how it actually played out. But in my head, I wanted to watch the Insidious movies with you because, because I remember one of them, either 2 or 3, getting bizarrely sexist and... Uh, and problematic in these ways. That's when I first kind of latched on to it's one of the sequels when I first, when I started thinking about, Oh, like this is actually totally conservative and screwed up and um, ideologically problematic. So you, uh, you brought this upon yourself, Laura, <laughs> cause now oh, we're going to have to, we're going to have to watch at least one more insidious. I just looked, there is a prequel which now would be very interesting because maybe we will get the story of Josh as a kid and we can learn about how our lady ghost wanted to wear pants. And there's a third, which is the final chapter, which is the conclusion. So, I mean, we'll see how much of that we actually, if we need to go through all four, but we should at least, we got to at least watch two. That sounds, it sounds fun to do with you. It's funny because I haven't seen either of those. I saw the first one just because I don't know, because I like horror movies. And it was a popular one. And then I saw it and felt like, cause it's not really my kind of film. So I haven't seen any of the others. That would be super fun. And that makes me wonder what years did they come out? Because 
just to fit this again, totally speculative narrative about how James Wan <laughs> made these movies. Was it a re- refining of the formula? Oh, The Conjuring did way better because it like totally <laughs> had this terrible ideology in it. And so, well, let's make it more like that. And even if it was, I would ask the second question of, did anybody notice? Because often, I, no matter how problematic things are, very often, I think they are mirrors, not intentional acts. You just think, oh, well, it perfectly makes sense. I'm, I'm back to, uh, oh, what was that film? Um, 84. The Vagina Dentata, Teeth. Oh, Teeth, yeah. And- Oh, of course, you know, the good person is going to be a a blonde virgin and the bad person is going to have dark skin and like sex and whatever. We don't necessarily intend to put that trope back out there, but it just seems so normal that I think sometimes creators will do that without realizing that they're doing it. So that would be an interesting thought. Did this, does the more problematic ideology do better? And if so, did anybody notice or did they just sort of, did it happen organically? (laughs) Right. And as long as we're attributing this for us, problematic, conservative, ideological bend of these films and these potentially these franchises. And just as a reminder for folks listening, we're watching this in part because we wanted to, but especially because after watching The Conjuring and realizing how conservative and restrictive in ideology it was, we wanted to see if James Wan's additional film of this era insidious was similar to see if that was something he was see how much we might consider attributing to him. And so as we're doing all this, Lee Winnell, who is another member of the slap pack who splat pack who worked on uh, saw and some of these other films with, uh, with one, he wrote this one directed it. And then the sequel, the story is one Winnell wrote it and Juan directed it. And then The Conjuring, Lee Winnell was not involved in, but The Conjuring 2, oh no, he didn't. Okay. Oh, that's actually better. So here we have Lee Winnell involved in Insidious in this conservative ideology, though not you said as pronounced. We have different writers, same director, James Wan, same director of both in The Conjuring, even more conservative, which to me says that the control there is Wan and these other people come in and out. And in both cases, we end up with a very conservative ideological film. And that for me is, is strong evidence, maybe not conclusive, but strong evidence to indicate that it is Juan totally who is driving or at least signing up for these projects that are, are very conservative, particularly because again, if we're going back to my made up thesis from or argument from the beginning of he made insidious for a million five and earned 57 or whatever it was. And so he came back and said, I want to do the conjuring and they gave him 20 million budget. He had clout and control and to be able to say, look, I've been successful. I'm the director. I want to be able to, I want this film to, to do this and do that. So how does that fit with saw? I, I I don't remember what the ideology is of Saw. We need to do Saw because I, I remember really liking Saw. I do too. And I don't remember there being trouble there, but oh, we should do, maybe we should do Saw just to take a tiny break from these. And it kind of fits our theme anyway. Maybe we should do that next and then I come back totally, to like yeah. Poltergeist or something. I You know, I would love to actually rewatch Amityville Horror. I haven't watched that since I was like 14, which for those of you listening, that's a long time ago. <laughs> 
I, I won't tell you how long ago, but suffice it to say, I rented it on VHS. So <laughs> anyway, uh, I would totally watch Saw. I am sure I haven't seen it in 10 years, probably 15. I do remember liking it. I don't remember ideological argument at all. Let's do it. Let's do Saw for sure. That's and not, I, Sorry, that's not true. Either 2011 or 2012, Chris and I watched all of the Saws back to back over a spring break. So I have seen them, but I don't remember. Anyway, sorry. Let's definitely do Saw for sure. Cool. Okay. And I, I saw the remake of Amityville Horror whenever that came out. And I, I, I'm sure I saw the original one forever ago too. But what I remember from seeing the remake was just that it was funny because I think they followed the original fairly closely. And all of those tropes were so old by now that it made it a really boring, almost laughable ghost story, which, you know, the original I don't think was boring and laughable, but there'd been maybe like this process we're talking about where those, the logical outs get refined over time and the films change to try to address them and still deliver the same underlying fear that it seemed like such an outdated argument it was like, oh, where you're laughing at people running up the stairs or whatever. It just felt very, very much like that in my memory. And that would be part of the reason I'd want to watch it is I have very little recollection of it. That's a film I would not expect to hold up at all. It still might be interesting to see it as a, particularly in the context of this discussion, as a kind of an origin of these tropes. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And like to do the original. Yeah. In the context of us talking about it, that sounds fascinating. I was just giving right. you my memory of seeing the remake, which was that the argument had evolved so much that it became comical. Yeah, so I'm just looking again for popularity. I mean, I know it was popular. It's kind of fallen out. It, it I remember that reboot, and it, I don't remember it being particularly successful, which is kind of interesting, but it was $4.7 million budget, and it earned 86. That was in 1979, and uh, that's when it was only released in the USA, so there's no worldwide the worldwide there was no global release of it and some of those numbers i was reading now were were global numbers so it was popular so at least at the time even if it doesn't hold up we can look at it as as an example of what did resonate at that time and what totally totally got people totally resonated with people at that time and what did that look uh, like absolutely like let's do saw and let's do amityville and let's do poltergeist for sure we got to come back to Insidious 2, at least. And Insidious 2. <laughs> okay, and after 2, I will say we can decide on prequel or 3, um, or neither. But we got to at least watch 2. I just, I swear I remember, I, it must have been 2, because it must have been the other one James Wan did that I watched. And I was like, I'm sure that when I started delving, starting to sink into the gender sexuality piece of my grad schooling, and I... I just remember watching it being like, oh God, this is not okay. <laughs> 13. So it was after I, after I graduated. Anyway, so I'm sorry. So we've got the men and the women. Why isn't it as bad? Oh, it's not. It's, so let me ask you this though. I still think this is a valid question of, is it better because it's less totally black and white and hard die cut? Or is it worse because it's- Like a worse articulation of the same crappy argument. Or is it more problematic in that it's not as obvious to sort out so people might be less inclined to notice it and 
reject it. You know, it's like the difference between PR and propaganda. Sometimes PR is worse, right? Because propaganda, you can look at it and be like, okay, this is obviously, I don't know, whatever it is, whoever it is, the U.S. government telling us that the military is a peaceful food distribution organization or whatever they tell us. And PR is like, no, you shouldn't hate BP for punching a hole in the earth and polluting it entirely. (laughs) But we saved a few turtles, so it's fine. I think that argument is not, there's not a direct correlation. It can be worse to be less direct. I love that you threw that out there. And I just think that was a super interesting thing you just said. I'm still going to say, no, I think this is actually better because The Conjuring, I don't think it was as obvious as that. I, I think it very well could have escaped me if we hadn't been immersed in the types of conversations that we have. And so now I'm going to say they were both, they both can fly under the radar. And I think this one by being less overt flies under the radar more like it, it accomplishes less of that impact because it's not just hammering the same points quite as hard. That would be my overall take. Not that I'm saying it's not trouble. I just think it's a little bit less trouble. To your point, I absolutely did not realize that about the conjuring the first time I watched it. I didn't even realize it the second time I watched it. You were the one who had to show up to the podcast and be like, yo, (laughs) here are these big, giant, waving, flashing banners and signs that are telling us that this is a a horribly regressive (laughs) ideological gender presentation of ideas. (laughs) So uh, your point is... uh, is absolutely accurate with me. And uh, obviously we, and well, with this film as well, I will say with the sequel, I was just saying this, right? I did start to notice these things are really problematic, but this first one, I didn't, I don't remember. I don't remember. I just don't remember cluing into, I just remember it being kind of scary and interesting and well done. I I don't remember having a, a strong analytical response to it. So I think your point does stand. I, I don't. I don't disagree with it. I just wanted to at least uh, explore the the option. No, I love that you said that, and I'm so glad we did these in the order that we did because a lot of these things that the patterns that I'm able to see in Insidious, I don't think I would have seen if we didn't have them. If we weren't beat over the head with them in Conjuring, and then we saw Possession, where we saw some similar ideas and some differences as well. But yeah, I don't think this one by itself would have. I would have been able to pull all that together. Right. So what else do we have? I think you said this, but I'm, I don't know why I'm thinking it again. Maybe we'll, maybe I have to cut this, but it is really interesting to me that, that it seems to be, if we go to Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw and uh, uh, Last House on the left, that first, those real early slasher, early mid seventies, late seventies were very much breakdown of society monstrous person, monstrous man. Well, hold on. I should exclude Texas Chainsaw Massacre from that. But those these other films were threat coming into the home. And this complements that of, no, the home itself is the threat. And so those two basically map over the entire space. Well, but- we went from threat coming into the home to the home is the threat to the th- home isn't the threat, but the threat can still get in, right? Well, right now, this is the threat is the spiritual, which is everywhere that that invades your your person or the person of somebody, you know. Oh, 
oh, maybe this fits with that, the sort of logic, right? Having to keep adjusting your argument to fit the logical rebuttals. Now we have supernatural, which is a perfect response to logic because it's like, hey, logic doesn't apply. Still gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> which, and I'm now I'm going to throw this out there. I mean, I know these are stacking up, but the interesting piece to me of that is that is true, but it, it, it is all suburb, exurb, rural. None of it happens urban. And urban, what the films that do a deal with urban are Candyman, which is phenomenal film and actually deals with the threat and the violence of poverty and the projects, actual threats, <laughs> right? It's metastasized into a supernatural event. But the more I think about it, I always loved Candyman. I always loved it, but increasingly... It's like every time I think about it, I'd like it more. And then two, we got to talk about people under the stairs at some point. Because people under the stairs is, is it, can we say that? I think people under the stairs is the only, I don't even remember if it's, do you remember that film? I don't even remember if it's a haunted house, but I know it's a, it's a suburban, it's totally a insidious house, but they overtly deal with race in the film. I know that. And I know that the kid who goes to the suburban house is from urban area and is black. So at some point that is going to be my one that I'm like, I'm going to insist. Well, I did already just say the sequel of insidious, but people under the stairs is the one I really would like to go to at some point, maybe towards the end and see what Craven did with adding urban and race overtly to the film. And the reason I excluded Texas Chainsaw Massacre is it's farmland and they, the threat, the killer doesn't come to them. They go to the killer, which is another, and that's true of uh, Hills Have Eyes also, right? Is, well, you're not safe in the suburbs. You're not safe in your home. You're definitely also not safe if you're going to travel across the country. <laughs> I like that. I like that, which is very like um, last house on the left, right? Like don't go out, don't venture out into the city. And, and that was particularly couched around young women. Of, oh, totally. Don't go anywhere because you're going to get attacked. I and, love this. And I spit on your grave. I spit on your grave is so interesting then. I mean, the, the original, uh, obviously, well, obviously for me and Laura, maybe not for folks listening. Anyway, because she goes from the supposed scary city <laughs> to the safe, idyllic, rural lake house. And that's where she has all the horror evil foisted upon her. But how about this? The, the overall piece to me here, which I think is really interesting, our, uh, Laura, is I think what we've managed to do is start to lay out a like a spatial schematic of where and how horror operates. And I think we should at least mention that, I mean, we've done this implicitly, but I'm going to say it again, just for clarity of for myself, as much as anyone, we need to be sure that exurb rural uh, suburban are coded white and are occupied by white people. And they're also middle-class upper middle-class working-class and I don't know. I just wanted to say that. I don't know if there's anything more to be said about it. No, I love this. And I, I love the, 
the ex explicit no notion that these different kinds of films are pulling on different fears and not only how that can happen sequentially. So like what fears become more popular is maybe a weird way to say it, but when you look at a film, right, what's going to generate interest among the public and how that might happen over time in a, well, I don't know if it's linear or cyclical or what it is, but, but how those arguments evolve to get at the same sort of underlying we're not safe which is essentially what horror is about, right? It's about playing into the fear of we're not safe just in a variety of ways. And I mean, I would almost love to make a list of like the different we're not safe arguments and how they map onto different parts of the genre. Like, like you said, we're not safe going out. We're not safe being home. <laughs> I, there are, I think there's some really fascinating potential there that we could dig into. It's also really safe though, we're not safe at home. Or it's also really interesting that we're not safe at home because in each of these so far that we've watched, the husband, the father, the patriarch is the agentic savior who is able to reestablish safety and normalcy and security in the home. And that's precisely opposite of what empirical research would show us, which is, which is that for women and for, I don't know if that's actually true for children, but for women for sure, the word, I don't know, how do I say that? What is it? The most dangerous place to be in terms of the threat of violence is to be in the home because that is the primary vehicle by which women are abused or assaulted or otherwise mistreated is by people they know in their home, which would be, I don't know if that would apply to a false consciousness, but it, it's another conservative aspect, right? Where conservative ideological notion where, well, what we're going to tell you is that the threat is the spirit and this demon and this haunting and possession or whatever it is, your husband will save you. Anyway, I love this argument. That the, you're the I love it. The conservative misdirection is the threat to women and kids in these films is spirit, demon, possession, whatever, supernatural, something. And the person who is going to protect you is the patriarch, is the, the male figure. And in U.S. society, that is precisely contradictory because it is the patriarch or the father figure, the, the male in the home who is most likely to be the purveyor of violence and abuse. And that misdirection, I would argue, is conservative because the, the current modern iteration of the conservative ideology in U.S. culture is quote unquote, family values, which is a traditional notion of a nuclear family that completely ignores and omits the acknowledgement of the massive widespread abuse of women and children in the U.S. during the supposed glory days when America was, quote unquote, great the first time. And that is as problematic and heinous as... Uh, ideologically as as any of these other pieces i think we've acknowledged with rendering women and children as implicitly or explicitly weaker and less capable and more susceptible to just generally not being able to care for themselves <laughs> so uh yeah these films just keep getting worse laura it's exciting <laughs> I love what you just put out there. I am so glad. I'm so glad you said all that. I think that's great. And I also love that you gave a, another, another example of this. I think misdirection is exactly the right word. Like you said, how that's something that we need to keep our eye on in horror films. So what is the threat and what are we being told to look away from that 
is actually a threat in society. And that's fascinating. I just, I, oh, I love what you just said there. I just think that was great. I love these ideas as well. I love these ideas as well. Hold on. I was going to add that here. For the record, we'll say not every man is an abuser. Not every man is uh, someone who is going to mistreat women and children. But overwhelmingly, it is men who mistreat, mistreat women and children and abuse women and children. And that is true amongst white, middle class, working class, upper class demographics as much as it is as it is true across race and class lines. So. And it's ex- it's exactly what we're saying. It's misdirection. It's not saying that that's always the threat uniformly in every situation, but it's saying that there are certain threats that we want to see as a society and elevate and call problematic. It's like the definition of social problems, right? There are things that happen in society that cause trouble, but there are two elements of something being defined as a social problem. It has to objectively cause harm. And then it also has to be seen by society as harmful. And so you're really highlighting that the, the ability to see it. Right. And so that, that doesn't mean that, like you said, every man is an abuser. It just means that men being abusers, that doesn't show up like basically at all in this genre. I mean, maybe we can think of some examples if we dig, but the, by far predominant argument is that men are saviors, end of story. And this is an argument, you know, this is a genre that talks about fear and what we should be afraid of. So it's a very big omission. If that is in fact a problem that is affecting a lot of people and it gets basically no notice in the genre, yet these other things keep coming up over and over and over and over and over as what you should be afraid of. That's, that's fascinating. I will say, and this is spoiler alert, and I'll do it in a, um, let me see here. I'm going to actually time this. I'm going to do this in a minute or less so you can skip this and not be spoiled. This is spoilers for The Stepfather. The Stepfather is totally a feminist film where the stepfather who moves in is the threat. And he has he killed his, his stepfamily prior and is a serial killer of the wife and the kids that he goes on and on and it's totally it's it's a it's a wonderful film and it is feminist and it is an outlier and it was uh it's identified in um, it's identified in um hold on i gotta look i gotta look look. okay and pinedo whose book recreational terror she devotes several pages to an essay identifying precisely that. So we do have exceptions, but they're totally exceptions. And they're, they've been noted by horror scholars and others as exceptions. And, and how much did they gross? I wonder, right? If we're looking at this, you know, since you, you led this with financial figures, right? How much that argument resonates? I think that'd be interesting to, to think about the extent, not only, to, not only the extent to which they're outliers, but also what kind of popularity they can get in our society, because They've got to get traction for the fear that they're putting out there. IMDb does not have budget for the stepfather, but the gross was 2.5 million. <laughs> so not as much. <laughs> uh, despite having Terry O'Quinn is the is the stepfather. No spoiler there. It's the title of the film. And he's a big name. He was the he was actually the actor in Lost. He's been in all kinds of stuff. So he's a, he's a big, I mean, he's not Tom Cruise, but he's a n- named known actor. 
and the director had made some other films. So it wasn't a total nothing movie. Should we grade it? I have one more thing to say. One more thing to say, which is when the kid runs through the new home, I fully got shivers. I just, I I still got to give Juan credit that he's able to, he has figured out ways to both do jump scare and I don't think that was really a jump scare, but like a, a good reveal in ways that are really effective and well done. It's a well-made film. I can just have to say that. That's all. Okay. I think I graded first last time. Do you want to grade first this time? Let me introduce. Final segment of our podcast. We evaluate the film. We grade it using a rubric. We are both instructors. We both teach sociology at CU Boulder. So we use a rubric as though we were grading an essay or a project is the inspiration. And we have a series of things that we consider, including the ideological argument, the kind of representation of folks, of people in the film. You heard us add a new component in this episode, which is what is the threat in the film versus what is the actual threat? And by actual, we mean supported by sociological research, how much what the ratios are of horror and torture to commentary and content, emotional experience, accessibility, a number of things that we consider and weigh and come out with for a grade. So our entertainment or engagement with the film matters, but it's not the primary concern. Here we are mostly interested in what does the film contribute or not to the cultural landscape. And the entertainment value feeds into how well then it's able to propagate that message. I, so I'm, I'm torn. I'm trying to think, did it do anything positive? <laughs> My gut says no. So I'm, I'm going to start there and then maybe we can refine this because did it, I, but I'm going to start by saying, no, I don't think it did anything positive, but it wasn't as bad certainly as the conjuring. And now the conjuring, I know I was just like super F <laughs> like it was, that one was really, really, really bad. This one, if it doesn't contribute anything positive, but it's not that bad, I don't know. I'm, I'm inclined to bring it up into like a D range somewhere because it wasn't just overtly horrible. It just, it wasn't good. And what it was, was bad, but what it was, was a little bit toned down, certainly from The Conjuring. And it didn't bother me as much even as Possession, is that what it was called? Because Possession had all that nuclear family breakdown stuff that certainly struck a chord with me and left me feeling crappy about my life. <laughs> so that was like a real downside. And even that I put in the D range, I think, because it had some of this trouble stuff, but not as much. So I don't know. I'm inclined to say D, not because it's good. You know, it's like I'm elevating it from The Conjuring just because it wasn't as bad. See, I think I gave The Conjuring a better grade than you did. And I don't even remember why. The Conjuring? No, that was, I think that was Possession. Oh, really? Possession, you gave a C, I think. And I gave a D because I couldn't handle its family structure messaging. Right. Okay. Well, that's good. Cause I, 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 I'm with you on the D. I agree. It didn't really do anything bad or it didn't. I'm sorry. I agree. It didn't really didn't do anything good. I just want to say this. We, we discussed this at greater length in the conjuring. And I just want to acknowledge that now that I'm thinking about it, that this also happened here, which is the film places empiricism and scientific evidence 
in service of the religious or spiritual rather than the scientific being on the same playing field or on the same level or the more important source of knowledge. And that for me is also an issue and problematic. Again, we, we address that more in the conjuring, but that was here too. And I, don't, I just want to acknowledge that, which I also find problematic. I, I'm willing to give it. Oh God. What do we do, Laura? Yeah, I guess I could do a, I can think of ways that the film could be worse. That's exactly where I'm sitting too. I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> I can think of lots of ways, which we, we should, maybe should have done is ways that it could be better. We, we, we often do include a segment where it's, how would we improve the film? I almost um, feel like with these types of films, I would rather wait till we exhaust this little corner of the genre that we're digging into and then think about how would we do one better instead of just this one? Because I think that could be a really long conversation, but a really interesting one once we get all our, all our info together. I'm into that. So stay tuned. We just so just note to us, note to ourselves, we should we should do a probably a like you said, a longer segment about how would we improve these sorts of films generally, or at least the conjuring and the insidious film and probably some others. But yeah. I, I'm cool with it. That'd be fun. And I would love to get into the argument you put forth about empiricism and like to try to figure out if there's even a way around that. I don't know if there is in this kind of film, but it'd be fun to dig into that with you and see if we could come up with a way to do it that would be not so much trouble. I don't know. Mm -hmm. That'd be fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't have, I don't know if this is where you are, but I dislike a lot of it, but I don't have a strong sense that I absolutely need to fail it, which I often do. I also definitely don't want to pass the film. And I know that's a, process of elimination rather than more active choice in assigning a grade, which I wouldn't do. I don't think with a actual paper or project, but with this, that's pretty much all I got. And I'm okay with that. I'm right there with you. Okay, cool. Let's see how much worse that these, these uh, films can get. (laughs) I'm having so much fun. I'm having so much fun. And it's so funny because I don't like these kinds of films. So it's great in the context of talking to you about it. Oh, it's just fascinating. I'm enjoying this as well. If for no other reason than I, who who pride myself on, on I mean, I'm teaching a class. Laura's going to teach a class. We have a podcast. Is what we do is sort out these, or we do this sort of sociological analysis of these films. And The Conjuring just whizzed by me, just over my head or, past my head or whatever the expression is and so it's uh it's fun for me to be reminded of just how just how easy it can be to get sucked into a movie or not realize exactly what the messaging is that's happening and that's fun to have that reminder and then be able particularly it's fun to be able to go back with you Laura and and have have these realizations of like oh my god yes I was I was blinded by the light if you will all right we good i love well, it this is so much fun so much gonna, fun totally are we gonna detour to saw or are we gonna i mean i guess it's your week so you can pick i'd be fine with either of that i'd be fine with detouring the saw i'd be fine with keeping on with these i think the overall conversation could probably go either direction and still be okay i'm super glad so far that we've done them in the order we have i mean it's just been luck but i think they've played out really well together so 
no pressure, <laughs> but I hope you pick the right one. And I don't know what it is. Uh, I, uh, I'm real tempted to do insidious too. And just knock that out while insidious is fresh. Okay, let's do it. Cause otherwise, I don't know, Laura, especially nowadays, what we did last week can be a distant memory by the time. So two weeks from now, three weeks from now, uh, if we come back to Insidious 2, I may well be sitting here like, what happened? <laughs> okay, let's do Insidious 2 and then let's do Saw. Okay. Yeah. And then, because cool. that'll be like a little break, but not really break on one dimension and not on another from these. And then we can think about going back to some of the older ones, like Poltergeist or Amityville or something like that. Cool. And then we'll wrap it all up with uh, people under the stairs. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Absolutely. Okay. Love it. Okay. All right. We appreciate you joining us. I don't do anything else at the end, do I? <laughs> we, we should pre- totally do The Exorcist, too. I mean, it seems silly to dance around all these films without actually doing The Exorcist. God, there's lots. There's lots. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how much steam we have after we've done four more episodes. <laughs> Sounds good. I mean, but it's great so far. Yeah, I'm loving it so far. Who knows? But it's like The Exorcist. It just seems weird to do this category of film and leave out The Exorcist. It it does. I still, I, ugh, I feel like um, feel like I'm calling in too many cards here, and I don't know if I have those cards to call in, but I still would really like to take a break and do Promising Young Woman when it's released on Christmas. I'm okay with that too. Yeah. I know it's not as kind of your close to your heart. I know you're on board, but it's not like your, you know, but I have wanted to see that since we first saw the poster at Alamo like nine months ago, 10 months ago, and it was delayed and then it was delayed and then it was whatever. And um, if it actually does come out uh, anyway, We really appreciate you joining us. We hope you continue to listen by all means. If you can suggest us, suggest our podcast to a friend, somebody else who likes horror films, listens to podcasts, please do. This is the Collective Nightmares podcast and horror films are our collective nightmares. That I got it, which I just, it, I I still got to give Juan credit. Pick up and move into our new episode of our podcast with our discussion of Insidious. It's pretty good. <laughs> I don't know. I don't fucking know. <laughs> that's all I got. Do you have anything? No, I think that's pretty good, actually. Why you started the pressure of doing that every time, I don't know, but I am, I am very, uh, in awe of your commitment to it. And you often pull out some little gems. So I think that was great. <laughs> Good enough. I don't know either, Laura, but it's kind of fun. There's a, so the Slash Filmcast, which is one of the oldest podcasts, apparently. They're coming up on their 600th episode. He, one of the, one of the stars at some point, so they do a pre-spoiler discussion and then a post-spoiler discussion. And at some point, one of the hosts of that, of that podcast decided that 
his initial reaction to the film he was going to present as a limerick. <laughs> and I mean, obviously then he goes on to have the full discussion, but I was like, oh, that's kind of fun. I, I, I don't think that was like a direct, I didn't listen to that and think, oh, we should have a pun or a homage or reference in our introduction to the movie itself or whatever. But I think, I don't know. I, I, I listen to these podcasts and I think that Sometimes those little bit of things that feel are like kind of familiar signposts, probably especially with us where we're, we're off in the fucking weeds immediately might be a little helpful. That's, that's also why I've been kind of pushing the introduce the segments a little bit more, you know, like here we're going to grade it because I don't know. I think people appreciate having some kind of and we don't do a lot. Let's face it. I agree with you. I agree with you. Any additional structure you can add in is probably very helpful. Especially again, you listen to other podcasts and we like, okay, let's start the discussion. Full, full throttle. You know, we're off in whatever marks and I don't know, whatever else. So, and we're in the, we're off into marks and let's reference our prior episodes in excruciating detail. Oh, what a joy to listen to. (laughs) I feel like I'm doing this for me and us as much as everybody out there. And so I got to balance that, you know, like this is so much fun. I don't want to, I don't want to not get in the weeds. That's what's fun about you. We can get in the weeds together. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I have zero interest in catering to the people who don't want to be in the weeds. Absolutely. We're doing this for us. I think that's clear, abundantly clear based on the fact that we're three years in and we still have like 70 listeners. <laughs> you should check how have things been going. Have you been? And if you're one of those 70 listeners, we fully appreciate you <laughs> more, more than we can say. We absolutely are borderline astounded that you're willing to, uh, <laughs> to even, even if you're not actually listening, you're just subscribing and you forgot that you're, you're still getting these episodes. We appreciate it. I just pulled up here. Yeah, we're still right at, we get, we're like 70. And then a couple of these bump up. Okay. That's all right. If we end up after a few weeks in the, somewhere between like 90, 100. That's just fine. Yeah, it's totally fine. Nice. And I'm still baffled. I told you human centipede is finally over a thousand, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thousand thirty nine. Huh. And then our other our top is still a spit in your grave. Where's Kuso? And I only wonder because I wonder how many people we may have convinced to watch Kuso. Oh, 132. Look at that. That's awesome. Yeah, that's something. Hereditary is at four hundred. Look at that I spit in your grave. Fourteen twenty-three. I really appreciate that we have at least, we have a couple episodes that are a thousand people listen to us discuss serial gang rape and human surgical violation. (laughs) (laughs) That's our most popular. (laughs) That's our formula, Marshall. (laughs) Uh, Where's our last house on the left? That's a brutal film. Uh, Left. No, we're 100. 
well, that's okay. Give it, give it some time. Who knows? Whatever. That's fine. Like you said, I'm totally into doing this for us and whatever students we can coerce into <laughs> listening to our podcast for a grade. Oh, look at that. Zoom has helpfully, helpfully provided me with the exact same recording indicator that is true if I'm recording or if you're recording. <laughs> Useless fucking people. <laughs> what bothers me is not that that is true. What bothers me is that some nitwit got paid like a good six figures to decide that that is the best strategy to use for this application. Probably, and it was probably approved by a number of layers, or it should have been, of staff and UX designers and blah, blah. All right. I like your rants, Marshall. I didn't get a chance to read your email yet. Oh, that's not my rant. That's just a rant. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. Okay. But I like your rants. Oh, yeah. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you sound loud. Are you loud? I do. I don't know. You sound like abnormal. I know. You sounded like you were topping out. Uh, um, I don't even know what to do about that, honestly. I've never had to adjust anything. Is it bad? Should I? Well, it's bad, but I, it's like, I, it? I, I mean, I can notice it, which, you know. You okay? <laughs> too much? Uh, I mean, I guess. I don't know. Maybe if you keep talking, it'll adjust or. Okay. Something. I don't know. I suppose I could go into my microphone settings or something or find them. If you think yeah, it's bad, you... I'll do it. I can't tell. Like, I can never hear you at all, but I think that's my new computer. Like, you're super quiet to me, but I'm pretty sure it's the speakers on my computer because they stink. I was going to say, you also don't use headphones. Yeah, that's true. Which still is baffling to me, but, you know, whatever. It feels like I'm in a tunnel, like I'm at the bottom of a swimming pool recording with you. I don't like it. Do you want me to go adjust the mic? Does it sound bad? No, I don't know. I think you sound better. Say something else. Okay. Then I'll just leave it. Okay. Yeah, leave it. Okay. Um, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't been getting like any sleep. So I feel much better today in terms of like not being a totally depressed lump. I'm just like super tired. So we'll see how this goes. Okay. I'm finding that I can't remember things. And I end up with these long pauses where I'm just staring into nothing. <laughs> I think my brain's like trying to fall asleep. <laughs> so we will see. How goes it? Did you buy a house? Maybe I put an offer in on a house. Oh. So I'll find out tonight or tomorrow, I guess. Oh, wow. Yeah. Maybe. Will you you be worried that it's haunted? I will. If I'm totally honest, the thought crossed my mind. (laughs) It did. In particular response to everything we've watched and that it has a super creepy stairwell down to a creepy basement and it's like a hundred years old. And I think the previous owner died. (laughs) Awesome. I don't believe in haunted houses and there's nothing particularly haunted looking about the house, but you know, mom moves in with her young son. And I mean, it just, I don't know. I, (laughs) the thought crossed my mind. And what also crossed my mind was that as long as we're going down that road, I would like you to come over if I do actually get the house and do the sage. Remember the voodoo sage that I got? Oh yeah. We can do voodoo sage. 
You the one out of the it? bin that had, it was cheap and it had no description of what its effects <laughs> would be. Whereas all the other ones were like, we'll bring lots of love and life to your life right. and you know, whatever. And this one was just like the bargain bin on the bottom, like no, <laughs> no tag. So that's the one I bought for $8 or whatever. I'm sure it'll be fine. So I would love to have you come over and, you know, burn that just cool. as a. <laughs> I'm amazed you still have it. It'll probably go up like a, uh, something that burns really easily. <laughs> It'll probably go up like a book of matches if it's been sitting there drying for like four years. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> saged. I was going to use it in this cheap. place. It's like an express saging. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to use it here, but it's obviously for, to me, it feels like a social thing to do. I don't want to do that alone. Cause that's just depressing. <laughs> like, let me wipe out all of the old juju in this house and then be here totally by myself. But then COVID hit pretty soon yeah. after I moved. So I like didn't get around to it. And then it was too late because I want to do it together. So. Right. Uh, sure. Yeah. That sounds fun. Sounds like a thing. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, what else is going on? Yeah, it does. But you know, I feel so much better today. It was a really hard few days, like really, uh-huh. really hard. He oh, got sick on. Should we, What's that? should we dedicate this episode in memoriam to <laughs> Laura's sweet, yippy dog that you may have heard in the background of episodes, Dexter? Oh, that's true. Unfortunately, moved on to the further tonight. Or not tonight, several nights ago. What kind of dog was he? A toy fox oh. terrier. He was what now? Toy fox terrier toy fox terrier yeah it was so sad it was so sad um, it was, was quick sad. it was quick yeah which i guess you know that's good i suppose you know it's better than having a big long drawn out thing i guess but it was it was it just it caught me off guard and i have a lot of guilt around the dog because he was very needy and he was old and i would get frustrated with how much he needed from me and I just feel guilty for not appreciating that time more. I didn't realize it was so soon, you know, that it was coming. And I just, mm. I don't know. I feel like, I guess you always feel that way. That's probably, this is probably what every single person says when somebody passes in their life. Like, I wish I had known. So I could have spent, could have really been there and not hurried them off the phone or whatever thing it is that you did that just lingers with you forever. Um, but it was with him for the last day the whole, he got sick on Wednesday and then I didn't take him to the vet, which I felt really bad about. But I mean, you don't know, like these kind of things, it was a GI thing that can pass, you know? And, and then by Wednesday night, he started to look sicker. Um, and I was up with him basically all night Wednesday night. And then I think I slept for about two hours maybe. Um, and then took him to the vet first thing Thursday morning. And they made him more comfortable and couldn't find anything wrong with him, which was, was I mean, they were like, obviously there's something wrong with him. Look at him. But they couldn't figure out what it was. Uh, and they did some follow-up testing on some stuff he had had done before that where he was having some, it looked like maybe liver issues and stuff. And so they did some blood work to check that and everything came back normal this time, which on the one hand made me feel better because I thought, okay, I didn't like drop the ball on identifying something I should have. Um, but they sent him home with like some anti-nausea shots and anti, you know, pain medication and whatever. And then a couple hours later he passed. So um, Yeah. It's good that it was quick and also hard that it was quick and I haven't really slept since. And I was super sad for a couple of days, but today I woke up feeling like 
more optimistic about life, even though I'm still totally exhausted and can't seem to sleep. So that's something. I think that's normal grieving. He was 10? He was almost 13. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, that's a long time to to have with a, with a lovely little creature. Do you think Hippo's yeah. noticed yet? I, you know, it's funny. No, I don't. Hippo was really interested in him when he was sick, but also he was acting weird. Like he was walking around the house and he was crying and he was, you know, throwing up and he just like, he, so he was paying attention to that. But when he he died in his bed just here, because we, the vet sent us with all this medication and said, you know, if it gets worse and the medication isn't working, then maybe you want to bring him back to have him put down. Like I didn't want to go through another night like we did the night before because he was in so much pain, but he just fell asleep in his bed basically. Um, But right next to Hippo and Hippo didn't seem to notice. I mean, it wasn't dramatic when it happened. So, you know, but um, I don't know. I don't, Hippo's acting normal. So I don't know if he knew. He didn't come over. He didn't check him out. He didn't, Hmm. he just sort of looked, sat there thinking nothing was going on. So Hmm. I don't know, but it was, yeah, it was hard. It was hard. So I spent the weekend kind of trying to catch up on the work stuff. I completely let go for those days and it's like finals week. And that was not easy. And it's so funny. I'm realizing that I had like no time to pay attention to hippo before. Cause Dexter was so needy. Oh. So it's like hippo and I are getting to know each other. He's lived here for eight months. I don't think we've ever made eye contact. Like oh. I just, it's funny. I come home and he's there and I'm like, Hey, I guess I should say hi to you. <laughs> like I'm so used to Dexter being a tornado and you know, like we just, I don't know. So yeah, that's we're... good. I'm sure Hippo appreciates that. I was going to give you, uh, I was going to kind of ask you about that anyway. I was going to say, give you a hard time, but you don't talk to Hippo? I honestly think I'm just with Noah and Dexter. I was so busy with things like actively yanking on me that Hippo's mm. like quiet and he hangs out in the background. And I mean, he's friendly. Like he comes up and sits on my lap and I pet him. I just don't think I've like looked at him or engaged with him really, except kind of, you know, sideways while doing something else. So it's been nice this weekend trying to look at him. Yeah, I feel like I have this roommate. I don't know. I just walk in the house and it's like, hey, what are you doing? Do you know soft eyes with the kitties? Uh-uh. Soft eyes is when you're looking at them, you want to, you don't want your eyes to be fully open. You can do like oh. a half eye or like a, a slow blink for them is very, oh. I've seen it described as like a hug and it's oh. something, to, something to do with, uh, well, one direct eye contact can be confrontational. So you don't necessarily want to do that. But two, it's something to do with, well, if they will close their eyes when you're looking at them, it means they trust you enough basically to not attack you, attack them when their eyes are closed. So you're kind of reciprocating that. Okay. So as you're learning eye contact with. Yeah, thank you. Dear Master Hippo. Okay, so we're doing Insidious 2 next time. Yeah, let's, let's knock it out. All right. Sounds good. Cool. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye. This was super fun. Uh-huh. It's always super fun. I always like have this little bit of sadness when we leave. Cause it's like, Oh, that's like all our hanging out for the week. <laughs> like I miss you. And I can't wait till COVID's over. Cause it was fun to do this in person and then get to actually like hang out, hang out totally. instead of like having to be like talking every second or like we could go get something to eat or we could, you know, yeah. so it will be, I guess over, but anyway, right. Just want to give words to that feeling that I always feel, which is like, Oh, already. <laughs> everybody's feeling it. I mean, I talked to folks, I talked to more folks than, than a lot of people for sure. You and everybody is really feeling it for sure. Um, yeah. And 
I mean, I, I feel that way for sure about you. And uh, it's funny just because like, so that fundraiser, you know, I did a, a Zoom where I showed people how to mix the drinks. And then the woman who filmed it, her friend was there and her friend had her daughter along with her, like college, <laughs> high school age, whatever, to kind of help out. And they kind of hung out just for a few, for a little bit after you know, I, I keep the mask and whatever they're further away and whatnot, but hung out for a little bit to just kind of chat about how things went. And, um, even that you could, people, I, th- I can't, I think even somebody said like, Oh God, I remember, or it's so nice to even just be able to do this. Cause I haven't been able to, cause nobody does anything and you, you know, or so at least the responsible people that probably I interact with or you interact with, that is a rare precious thing so yeah it's yeah yeah it's tough um all right get some dinner get some uh sleep i'll be in touch all right sounds good have a good night current iteration of the conservative ideological idea the current inter the current iterate the current modern iteration of the conservative ideology in u.s culture is 